morning, and uh, we're going to jump into this. If, if you're visiting with us, we're going through the book of Romans, and I um, want to catch you up to speed. So chapter 1 through 3 um, is this, all have sinned, right? So if you want to understand Romans, this is it, all have sinned, including the Jews, which was not a popular thing uh, that Paul was experiencing and have, had experienced, and then chapter, well, actually it's three and a half, and then chapter three and a half to uh, five is justified by faith, right? Through faith in Christ's blood. So justification, uh, three and a half to five, and then you got six through eight is this whole call to be sanctified, right? Sanctification. Um, sanctification. Um, chapter 9, uh, chapter 8, oh, sanctification, and, and you got the Holy Spirit, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? He's in there too, so Holy Spirit and the cross. So now we're on chapter 9, and, and chapter 9, Paul changes course completely. And we're reading this story, but what we don't know is that Paul is writing Romans, if, if you're not familiar with this, he's writing Romans towards the end of his ministry career and his life. And so he has gone into city after city after city in Asia Minor, and he's gone into the synagogues. Um, that was typically where he went first to preach. And he encountered, you know, people that were following Christ, but he encountered, obviously, the, the Jews there in the synagogue, and he was trying to reach them because they were part of his own family, his own race. And what was happening was everywhere he went, just like what we saw in Jesus' life, he was persecuted. They didn't like it. It wasn't a popular message, what Paul was bringing. In fact, so toxic was it. You can read in Acts the story of Paul and go, my goodness, people were just always after this guy. They really thought and were convinced because of the gospel that, that Paul was preaching that Paul hated the Jews and he was a traitor. He hated his own people. And, and so chapter 9 begins a whole new subject where Paul is saying, and he's, he's writing to these Roman Christians, which he knew Jews were in there. He also knew there were Gentiles who didn't like Jews either, and Jews didn't like Gentiles. There was all kinds. It was just messed up. It was church. Um, so, sorry, if you're visiting with us and you don't want mess, you may not want to stay, stay here. Um, so Paul starts off Romans 9, and what does he say? He says this, he says, I, I wish that I could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He loves his people, loves his people. You can't miss that in Romans. He just makes that so clear. I love my people. And then he goes on to say, and it's not only that I love my people, they are a privileged nation. And he goes on to say, for theirs is the adoption of son. There is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, right? The promises, verse five, theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, the Messiah who is God over all forever praised, amen. So there's these immense privileges that Israel had, and, and we talked about those last week, and, and you can look, those, look up that message if you want to go back over that if you missed it. So then he gets into what you would call are the top FAQs, frequently asked questions, more like the frequently objections or frequently voiced objections. I don't know how you would say it, but these are the things that people, especially the Jews, always came at him with over the, the ministry career that he had. Heard them all the time, same ones. Synagogue in, synagogue out. City in, city out. It was always these big ones, right? And so he starts to voice 
these questions or these objections or arguments and, and starts to just deal with them one at a time. And, and they're really what we would call stumbling blocks. Three major stumbling blocks. It's not all of them, but it's, it's what he brings up here in this passage. And so we're going to just go through this passage, try to do the entire chapter today because it, it's all one cohesive thought, actually 9 through 11. So that's why I'm talking really fast. Sorry. You can get online and slow the sermon down later if, if, if you need to. I just feel like I'm... <gasps> All right. So he starts off with a, a stumbling block number one. It's not as though God's word has failed. And, you, and you'll see that up on the screen. So their question or their argument is, Paul, if you say this about Christ and salvation is by faith, justification is by faith without works and, and all that, and you say we're all sinned, then God's promises. They all are broken, and he never kept his word. And Paul says, oh, come on. So his his argument is this, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor nor because they're Abraham's descendants, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offering, offspring. For this is how the promise was stated at the appointed time, Sarah will bear a son. Now, you know, I memorized this so long ago, and this, these verses here always confuse me. Not all Israel belong to Israel, and not all Abraham's descendants are his children. I don't understand that. So here, here it is. So we got Abraham. Oh, it doesn't even show up. We'll just pretend like you can read it. Let me see if I got another one here. No, red's not going to work either. Oh, it does work. All right. So we have Abraham. Sorry, I'll, I'll spray it. So it's not irreverent. There we go. Abraham marries Sarah, right? They try to have kids, can't have kids. So Sarah has a handmaiden named Hagar, right? Abraham they, they kind of do this work around because they've got this promise of God thing that they, they've got to help God out on, right? And so they said, well, let's go ahead and have a child through Hagar. So they have a child, and, and his name is? Bible. What? Oh, there you go. All right, we got a little Bible trivia here. Ishmael. And then that's bad things, kind of go sideways on him, whatever. Eventually, God comes to Abraham. I mean, God's like, well, you guys can do whatever you want to. I mean, that, that, that's your decision. I've got a promise I'm still going to keep. That's not my plan. So he comes to Sarah when she's old, he's old, and they end up having a son named Isaac. So what Israel was doing was one of the things that was happening was God came to Abraham, gave him all the promises, right? All these great privileges. And what they had done is said, oh, look at us. We have got all these promises and all these privileges. We're set we kind of deserve this. We earned this. We've got God over a barrel. We're in. And they started to twist God's words and his promises. And so Paul, with the gospel, saying, no, that ain't how it works. And they were saying, well, no. So, so you're saying all these promises don't work or whatever? He's saying, well, no. So he starts to come after these ones. And he's saying, one of the things they said was, oh, if I got the DNA, I'm saved. DNA saves me. And, and Paul's like, no, DNA doesn't work. For instance, if you guys would go read Israel history, DNA didn't make Ishmael chosen. That didn't work. God 
chose Isaac. And actually, if you want to do DNA, if you read on, Abraham had a, a second wife, I forgot her name, and she ended up having six boys. Well, one, two, three, five, six, right? So if you go with DNA, these, these guys should be part of the promise too, but God's like, I don't know where you guys are getting this. It's me that's doing this. It's not your DNA. I'm the one doing this. And that's why he quotes this one verse out of Genesis where he says, at the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And it was this meeting here where some say it was actually, well, I won't go into all that, but it was God giving this prophecy of saying, look, you're going to have a son. I am choosing this one. It's not DNA. Simply being related to Adam or Abraham was never the promise because DNA tests don't save. Genealogy doesn't save. The only way this happens, this promise happens, is because God chose to do this. He chose Isaac. It's dependent on God. And he goes on. It's under this whole, it's still under this first subjection of God, you know, and his promises and everything. And one other thing that he heard during that time was it wasn't just DNA, it was also birthright. So people were saying, oh, I, I've got the birthright, firstborn, right? Oh, that's why. It's not only because we got a DNA, we're actually the firstborn. And Paul's like, what, whatever. So he moves right into the next one. He says, not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, Isaac. So Isaac marries Rebecca, right? So it's Isaac and Rebecca. And they marry, and they have what? Twins. Jacob and Esau, right? So Isaac, Rebecca, so now we're talking grandkids right now. You almost, it gets kind of confusing. That's why we're doing the family tree thing. At least for me, it helps. So he says this, not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, the older, or the younger, and he said, uh, not, not by works, but by him who calls the older will serve the younger. She was told that. And it says in verse 13, just as it's written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So, election. You know, next week, uh, we're going to be talking about election. I'm going to dodge that for this week. Um, so if you are interested in hearing a whole message on what election is, free will, predestination. I've asked uh, Norm Pond and, and Pastor Sean to come up here and to tell you everything you need to know. And they're going to solve it all. And I'm just going to watch it happen up on stage. So, yeah, next week they're going to be up here. Um, I've asked them because they are, this is their wheelhouse. They're really good at this stuff. And uh, words matter when you start talking about these things. And and so, one, two guys that get really good at being precise with their words, um, it's not necessarily my wheelhouse, let's just say it that way. Um, I like drawing things. Um, so, Jacob Esau, what he says this, and so that's next week. Come back next week, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, Jacob and Esau, before they were born, before they had done anything good and bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, uh, the older was, uh, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Jacob, I love Esau, I hate him. And what he's saying right here is, you can't even claim birthright because what happens in this is Esau is born first, but it's Jacob who gets the promise. 
God turns it all upside down. And yet Israel is still hanging on to this birthright thing, saying, oh, no, the firstborn, the firstborn. And Paul's like, you guys are nuts. You don't read history. Read your history. God doesn't care about birthright. It doesn't give you any kind of leverage over him. It's God who initiated this. God's word hasn't failed because it was dependent on him from the beginning. And he's making it clear that God's salvation is available only because God has made it available. No one no one has a, a hold on God or somehow can coerce God into doing this. It, it just doesn't work that way. And they were trying to take God out of it. Now, one of the things that's difficult about these verses is when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And, and that's God. He's quoting God at that point. And so what does that mean? Well, to understand this, I mean, the, the, the real question is, is God, does God do evil? And of course, Scripture says there's no shadow or hint of evil with God, none whatsoever. So what do you do then if that's, the, if that's the doctrine of God and who he is, and yet this says he hated, and hating is evil, what do we have? Well, there's another instance. Uh, the fourth commandment is honor thy father and mother, right? Then you fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus says, you must follow after me and love me. In fact, if you don't hate your mom and dad, you don't understand how to follow me. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. You just said, do, you know, honor your father and mother. Now you're saying, hate my father and mother. What, what is that? What gets lost in here is it's actually a, a comparison is the best way to understand it. So... Uh, a comparison is this. In light of this, the comparison of, of the other's path or the other person see, is less than. So, for instance, when he starts to quote, actually, he quotes um, Malachi when he says this. Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. It's a reference to Malachi. And it's actually because Jacob gets the Israelites, Israelites, and Esau gets the Edomites. And there's this whole verse about God choosing Israel over the Edom. It's actually Jacob and Esau, and yet the context is this broader reference to the nations themselves. And so what does that mean? It means this. The blessing he poured out on Jacob and Israel compared to Esau and the Edomites is incredibly drastic. That's, that's how you would say that in, in our time. God didn't, really, didn't literally hate Esau, but he'd chosen Jacob to receive the blessing. And there is a drastic difference between those two. And in this, it's still the point. God initiated this. Jacob was chosen before he was born. God's word is still intact because it still depends on him. So having finished with that, Paul comes with his second stumbling stone. And he says, some of you, or not, um, how would you say, what then shall we say? In verse 14, is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So he, he does this, and he starts to talk about this whole idea of God choosing and election, and, and these are big words, and, and the immediate response is, well, that's not fair. God's not fair. And I would imagine there are those of us in this room who stumble over this, 
and this whole action, and, and it feels unfair. And he's heard this. I mean, he's heard this city in and city out for years. And what does he say? He says, for God told Moses, right? I have mercy, or I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well, that's a huge story. That's a whole other story. And in fact, when he writes that, every Jewish person knows exactly what he's talking about when he talks about Moses, because here's the backstory on that quote. So imagine Israel's in 400 years of slavery. They multiply, multiply. They get to be this big, big nation, right? And, and then you have the story of, of God coming with Moses and, and the whole, you know, plagues and everything. Well, Israel had just been set free from 400 years of slavery. They're, they're overloaded with all this wealth because Egypt gave them all of this wealth. They're headed to the promised land. They saw God give 10 plagues. They saw God send this little tornado that kept the, the, the Egyptian army from them, from killing them. And then they got to the Red Sea. They saw God part the Red Sea. They walked through the Red Sea. They get to the other side. And then they saw God you know, wash over or release the Red Sea on the Egyptian army that was trying to cross, decimated that army, wiped them out, right? And then they traveled over to Mount Sinai. God himself comes down on the mountain, his presence there, fire, smoke, it's awesome, don't touch the mountain, you'll die kind of thing. Everybody can see it, the whole tribe, the whole nation can see it, right? Moses is up there, he's with God, and, and they can't even wait for Moses to get down before they start worshiping another god. They create this golden calf after all that they had just been through in the previous months, not even years, previous months. And they're like, anybody got some gold? Let's build ourselves a calf. We need a God to worship. Meanwhile, there's like smoke up there, lightning, you know, don't go. God gets ticked off. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm done. I'm going to judge them. They deserve it. And then Moses, what does he do? He says, no, 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 relent, relent, have mercy, have mercy on our people, have mercy on our people. So God doesn't wipe out the entire nation. He, he judges those who were leading this thing and they die, but the rest of the nation gets mercy. So many of them. And what does he say? He says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on anyone or whom I have compassion and Paul's, Paul's coming to him, he's saying, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to say God's not fair. Isn't this convenient how quickly you forget history? Oh, it's okay when God gives mercy when you need it, right? When you think you need it. But when, when God is saying, no, I want you to depend on me for everything. Oh, no, 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 God's unfair. Yeah, it, it's okay to give mercy as long as it's to me, but for other people, uh, go ahead, take them out. Which is what he says next, right, Pharaoh? He pulls in Pharaoh. He says this, It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that, my power might be, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So through that whole story, you have Pharaoh, who, editorial line, chapter 1 of Exodus, Pharaoh forgot about Israel's past and who they really were. Didn't want to remember. 
turns them into slaves. Remember, he kills all the baby Israelite boys. Pharaoh's not a good guy. Tries to kill Moses. Moses flees. Moses comes back, let my people go. And and there's this whole thing when Moses comes back to, to set Israel free, 20 times you hear this word harden. Harden happens 20 times. God starts it. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it goes back and forth. But it's God who starts the hardening process. And what's the point? He's pointing to their history, their own history. And he's showing them that God has been choosing people all along. They're okay when it goes in their favor. When it seems like it's all good for them. But as soon as it's judgment, they don't like it. As soon as it's all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they start stumbling over it. Wait a minute, we haven't all sinned. We've got our genealogy. We've got our birthright. God's not fair. And Paul's saying, look, God's mercy is dependent only on God. No one can coerce it. No one can force it. Only he has the right to offer mercy. Only he has the right to bring judgment. Which leads us to the third stumbling stone. Paul mentions it and he says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? So the, the objection, the stumbling that happens here is people say, well, how is this our fault? If God is the one pulling all the strings, how is this our fault? It's impossible to resist God. What was God thinking, you know, when he set up this whole thing? It's impossible. And Paul gives an answer that is, it's probably one of the most abrasive answers to the years of this world. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. He does a comparison. He says, clay is us, potter is God. Ouch. That's how drastic the separation is. Who are we in comparison to God? We are simply the clay. Clay does not talk back, does not talk to the potter. See, God doesn't consult us. God doesn't ask us how to run the world. He doesn't wonder at night, I wonder if they think I'm doing it right. You know, yesterday I was just uh, getting a part and I had to wait 
there was somebody helping me and they did a great job and the person who normally was there wasn't there so she came in. Nothing had happened in my experience. It was fast, it was quick. She comes back and she just apologizes to me, like for saying, I'm sorry. And the cashier and I look at each other like, for what? And I think that's sometimes our view of God. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm God. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. He's sovereign, and it is so hard for us to get our minds around that. He is sovereign. Like, he didn't even learn anything because he knows everything. He, he can create with a word the galaxy. You speak a word right now. What are you going to create? What am I going to create? The only thing we could possibly create with our word is only given to us by the authority and power of Christ. That's all we got. God's the one who's just, fair, righteous, loving. He has no shadow of evil. And we're going to come to him and say, you're wrong? I mean, Job... Job had an experience. You can go read the book of Job. That, that didn't go so well for Job. He got a little frustrated with God and, and uh, towards the end of the book and his friends weren't helping. It was a whole mess. And at the end of the book, God says, stand, embrace yourself like a man. Let's answer some questions here, thunder. Where were you in the beginning? Where were you when I lined out the heavens? Where were you? And it's just one question after another and Job's real quiet crickets. And he can't even create a cricket. And Paul goes on, he says, look, you, you forget your place. You forget your place. And he goes on to say, well, what if this? He says, you have no idea, but what if this is the plan of God? And he says, what if God, choosing to show his power, show his, show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? And that's a reference to the end judgment that's coming. He's saying, you, you have no idea what God's plan is. And what if he is waiting and waiting and waiting for that great day of judgment what the entire universe will see his power and authority? And he's saving it up for that day for those who have rebelled and refused to bow their knee. And he will judge, and they will know his wrath and his power. And he goes on, he says, we don't know, but what if that's what God's doing? And then he says this, what if God also, for those who have, you know, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He's saying, hey, what if, what if God all along has been storing up this whole moment so those who have experienced his mercy get to see his mercy on display because he loves us and he saves us. He's like, we have no idea the grand scheme of, of God, the plan of God over that stretches over what you would say all, all eternity. We have no idea. And then he goes on to say this. He's like, he quotes Hosea, and then he quotes um, Isaiah, and here's church history, real quick. This always got me confusing. I didn't do good in Bible class, but Israel, right? Israel had two kingdoms. They had a civil war. So you had 10 tribes up here and you had two tribes down here. And this is really confusing because the 10 tribes up here kept the word Israel. So they were Israel and these guys were the nation of Judah. 
one of the tribes down there. So there's two tribes down here, Benjamin, Judah, and there's 10 tribes up there. It got really confusing. So uh, around 700, something like that, Israel had about 200 years since David. Uh, after, well, and then they had the Civil War thing, and then a bunch of kings that were just messed up. Go read First and Second Kings. They were just really messed up, got really bad. And they went bad before these guys, about 200 years, and Assyria comes in, wipes them off. And God says, you're no longer my people. You don't care about my covenant? Why, why are we playing games here? You're not my people. And they get taken away. Then Judah hangs on for another 200 years. They had a few more good kings, and they went really bad. And then Babylon comes off, and, and they're all taken off. And God had told them, you're not my people. You don't keep my covenant. You don't care about me. Look what you guys do. So then you read these prophecies where God is coming to them now with new prophets, or prophets after all this, or right there at the end, he's saying, look, there's going to be hope. And he gives these prophecies to Israel. And he says this, I will call them my people who are not my people. In verse 25, I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons, called sons of the living God. It goes on, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. He says, it's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us ascendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah, completely wiped out, gone off the face of the earth. And what Paul is saying here, and what, what is so apparent is these prophecies, while they were made to both Israel and to Judah, they're bigger than this. And this is what Paul's trying to say is, they're so much bigger than just Israel, it's the whole world that God is saying, I'm gonna call them my people. You guys have no idea. It's not just about your DNA and birthright. I'm doing this incredible plan of mercy that's gonna bless this world and you're worried about this. And that won't save you, I save you. My plan is so much bigger than yours. God's saying, I want the whole world. And he concludes with this. So what do we say? that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. How? Because they pursued it not by works, but by faith, right? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion. A stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes men fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. By faith. They stumbled and stumbled and stumbled. And what were they stumbling over? They were stumbling over Jesus at every point. They could not get past Jesus and how he strips us of everything. Everything. There is nothing that earns our way to heaven. And they kept stumbling over it whether it was the family, whether it was birthright, whether they're saying you're not fair, whether they're saying that's, that's unjust or, you know, might as well give up, that's impossible. 
He's saying God is sovereign. It is his mercy and his initiative. The grand irony is the Gentiles who didn't have any privileges, you and I, and the incredible display of God's mercy is you and I can receive God's mercy. All along in their history, God was showing them their privileges were never meant to save them, but simply to have them fall on their knees and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for your mercy. But they just could not get past Jesus. They just couldn't get past him. They would stumble over Jesus. And it's either stumble over Jesus or step in faith. Trust in him. And some of you this morning are stumbling. I I know that. That's the journey. Stumbling. You may be at this God is unfair piece and you just, you don't get that. Or you're at the impossibility thing and you're stumbling and you just cannot get beyond that. It, it's a common experience. You're not alone. You're just not. But some of you have never moved towards having faith in Jesus because of this. And for whatever reason, you're stumbling over the same thing again and again. And what if, can I just pose a question? What if you just trusted in him today? Like what would be the worst thing that could happen? You may not have all your questions answered. Okay. Well, what's the worst thing that could happen? You trust in him, and you say, okay, Lord, I don't have the answers. I don't have this all explained, but I'll trust you. And what you will encounter is forgiveness, justification. You, you will encounter a life where God washes away. I just, first service, and we had this um, just offered for people who wanted to just make that step. And, and I don't think God's going to want you to do this privately. You need, you need to tell somebody. You can't walk out of this room without telling someone because we hide and there's something that happens when we tell someone. I, someone came forward and said, I've never trusted him. I've never trusted him. And I want to trust him. And the encounter that person had with God, they still have a lot of questions. That's okay. You can have questions. There's a lot we don't know. I mean, we just, that song, at the end of Romans 11, the, the knowledge, who, who understands God and his ways? They're so much higher. But we do understand this, and we can know this. And some of you, maybe even in your Christian walk, you've trusted in God, but you're stuck. Like, you got to this point here, and you're stuck. You're angry at God. You're, you're, there's, think, there's thoughts, there's things that have happened, and you're just like, that's so not fair, God. And you're just, you keep stumbling, 
and you keep stumbling and you won't let it go. And, and maybe God's just saying, I'm God. I am God and you have to trust me. Let's pray. Jesus, would the weight of your glory and your presence fall on us? Jesus, would your sovereignty and the comparison between who you are and who we are become clear to us right now? Would you make it clear in a personal way to each person? Lord, would you show us your mercy? What that has looked like in our history, our life. What it looks like this morning. What it's going to look like in the days ahead. For those of you who have never trusted in Christ, you've been stumbling over this pot, on, uh, this, this, this stone on this path, this, this rock called Christ, I just encourage you right now to just tell him, I'll trust you. I'll trust you. I'll trust your salvation. I'll trust your mercy. I'll trust your plan. Even just give him your questions. Say, God, these are my questions. You know they are. Help me. And some of you who feel like you, you have something between you and God be, because you've seen injustice or you've felt injustice or you've felt something's unfair or you feel like it's impossible and you keep stumbling over this and you're not going closer to him because of this. Can you just tell him right now that you'll trust him and that you'll let this go in his name? And ask him, just help you to stand in faith now. Jesus, we, we need you. We thank you for your mercy. Thanks that you gave us a chance. Thanks for letting us receive it. Would you send us out this week seeing you? knowing you, understanding your plan through history and even in our lives in a deeper way, a richer way. Walking in faith and being close to you. Would you just protect us and, and not let things steal it from us as we go? 
Jesus' name. Amen.